Get off my world. Get off my world. Get off my world. I'm Kelvin. I'm Pat. And this is Get Off My World, a podcast dedicated to classic Doctor Who. And every once in a while, we will talk about um, some newfangled Doctor Who as well. Um, Today, we are going to kick off the five rounds rapid we usually do with round one, Temporal Grace. And that is a round in which we all share something nice about the world of Doctor Who. Pat? Yeah, so this is going to be kind of an acquisitive temporal grace today. But, you know, so like many people of a certain age, uh, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of decades going on eBay and and buying things that I either had as a child and (laughs) and subsequently lost or more frequently was never able to afford in the first place. And, you know, having done this for a certain number of years, there really isn't much out there in the world left that I actively looking for, except there's two things. I'm still looking to complete my collection of unspeakable oath role-playing fanzines from Pagan <laughs> Publishing, the Call of Cthulhu fanzine. Uh, Scott Glancy, would, uh, who was a guest previously on the show, would uh, uh, that's his company. So if anyone out there has issues two or three, please <laughs> let me know. I got all the other ones. But then the other thing that I just completed is... I now have all of the original FASA Doctor Who role-playing game supplements. I had many of them on, uh, as a kid, uh, but then in you know future years, I've sort of picked them up as they became available at reasonable prices. You know, one here, one two years later, and so on. For some reason, the Master and Cybermen source books were particularly difficult to find at reasonable prices. I'd picked up the Master some time ago, and I just bought the FASA Cybermen source book. A few weeks ago, and we had a special episode of our podcast, listeners might remember, where Ray Winninger, the author of this source book, he was about 17 when he wrote it, it was his first published uh, work, talks to Scott Glancy about the process of creating it. So in any case, I now have the complete collection. Nice. Kelvin? Uh, I just want to say that um, I read the, it's not the latest collection, but like the second most recent collection of of the 11th Doctor comics entitled The Malignant Truth, which ends the, um, good Lord, 15-issue-long storyline that started with the then and the now and continued with the one and now finishes up with The Malignant Truth, and it's great. It's one of the best comics I've read in a long time. Very Lawrence Milesy, Just, you know, crazy, insane stuff happening. Uh, It ties in with, like, the old comics continuity stuff. Like I think I mentioned in the past, like uh, Absalom Doc shows up. A lot of references to the new series and to the old series, and uh, it introduces, honestly, one of the more disturbing Doctor Who villains I've ever seen, uh, which I don't, I didn't write down because I didn't want to spoilerize it for people. Mm. But uh, I forget what they're called, but they're, they're, they're pretty distressing. Uh, it's written by Cy Spurrier and Rob Williams, and it was uh, drawn by Ian J. 
Colbard and Simon Fraser. And I also saw uh, got the fourth Doctor collected um, book, The Gaze of Medusa, which is also very good. It's set in the Sarah Jane Smith era, and it's very true to that gothic horror-y kind of vibe that they had back then. Do they give her, like, makeovers? The gaze? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I get it. G-A-Z-E. <laughs> oh! Gaze. Uh, I was going to pass that joke off. I thought I had really <laughs> good taste, and <laughs> like I was mentally patting myself on the back. <laughs> I'm willing to throw myself on these grenades. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> well, I have um, been recently watching and strangely enjoying a competing time travel show, uh, which is uh, DC's Legends of Tomorrow. Yeah. I've been also having discussions uh, with a friend, Bill Steitler, who has been on our podcast before. Uh, we had the uh, Cheese of the Doctor discussion with Bill, as you may remember. And um, when I have these discussions with Bill, Bill points out just how awful this show really is and as soon as we have discussions i'm like yeah you're, you're right this is this is a truly terrible show and i just recently got a text from bill that says okay i've watched the lucas that's george lucas episode of legends and i'm done with this show forever so i mean the george lucas episode was terrible and i just watched it and laughed and came to this realization in my discussion with bill that uh legends of tomorrow makes every shallow, ridiculous, new Who storyline just seem great. So it really helps my appreciation of new Who (laughs) to watch Legends of Tomorrow, particularly the way they treat historical figures, because it it makes new Who look like a Ken Burns documentary in comparison. DC Comics, lowering (laughs) the bar since 1939. So thank you, Legends of Tomorrow. It's made, um, you know, watching the new season of Doctor Who even better. So for our second round, our special topics Dalek, I have a question for the team today. Uh, Sometimes people get interested, who knows why, in the nuts and bolts of how to create a podcast. So today, could we talk a little bit about what goes into our preparation for the podcast? (laughs) I know. Oh, give me a moment. (laughs) I thought the contrast might be amusing, Kelvin. (laughs) <laughs> so, like, do you rewatch the episodes? Do you take notes? That, that sort of thing. I mean, I could start. <laughs> Stop that, Kelvin. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, for my part, I've seen all of Doctor Who except some of the reconstructions. So if it's a randomizer that uh, of something that I've seen before, then what I'll usually do is I'll have it on while I'm doing other work, typing away, you know, <laughs> and so I'll, I'll kind of divide my attention between watching and taking notes on the show in my Google Docs and doing other work that I might necessarily be doing, which I've noticed has an odd effect that sometimes some of the more visual elements of the show I uh, escape me. Like, you guys will be like, oh, this person was dressed like such and such. Was he? You know, because my <laughs> eye isn't necessarily on the screen 100% of the time. I've been trying to uh, trying to fix this, trying to pay a little more visual attention to it now. Um, for episodes that I've not seen before, like the one we're going to talk about today, uh, or last time we talked about the Smugglers or Power of the Daleks, then, I, then I'll always watch it with my wife, Carrie, because she has now all, also seen all of the Doctor Who that I have. Uh, and usually... We limit ourselves to two episodes of the classic series a night because the pacing is such that your attention can kind of wander if you are trying to watch a full, especially a six-parter or something. So we'll watch two episodes a night. 
Reconstructions will watch one episode a night. <laughs> like two-minute increments. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, and then when it's done, I'll try to immediately take notes so I don't forget about stuff like that. Uh, and then as far as like the audios go, uh, I commute to work on the bus, and so I have several hours a week where I can listen to Doom Coalition 15 or War, <laughs> War Doctor 200. Uh, I've tried listening at the gym on like the treadmill and stuff, but uh, you really need music for that. Yeah, you can't hear yeah, over all your heavy weird. breathing. Yeah. You're yeah. <laughs> it's just too easy to get just, distracted. You, and you, you have to wait until like, there's a really exciting scene, then, you, then your heart rate picks way up. Yeah. And then you can run really fast, and then you know the more meditative things, you're just kind of at the walk and yeah. cool down. But it's audio, so even then they're describing a really exciting scene. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yeah, I have to do all my audios listening uh, at work, which which in my job is is plausible. Air traffic control? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, just um, just processing documents for people's mortgages. Um, <laughs> nothing important. Nothing important. You know, it's just multi-million dollar transactions in California, no big deal. But um, that's the only place I can find to do that. And uh, it can be problematical sometimes because I, I, I will miss details in the audio sometime because I thought you meant in the mortgage documents. <laughs> They're like, why is my mortgage co-signed by the VORD? This is really weird. <laughs> eh, eh, no comment. But, uh, um, you know, like I will, I will lose track of which character is saying what. Well, like for the, for the Doom Coalition 4 here, I keep getting like Liv and Helen mixed up. Yeah. But uh, that, that's really the only time I can really listen to it very well. But and you don't take notes, right, Kelvin? I don't think that is a judgment. But I, I, I probably should, but I, I've never really taken notes, no. Uh, I, it, it's rely it's, on your ironclad memory. Yeah, so, so to speak. <laughs> I, I think it's uh, a weird psychological thing I have. Like, even in, in like high school and college, I kind of resisted taking notes, and I can't say that I didn't suffer for that. <laughs> uh, but, yeah, it just it, something about that just kind of made me mad on some weird level like I don't I don't <laughs> know what it was exactly but um I've always been a terrible note taker or you know I wind up writing down things that are you know interesting to me that don't really have anything to do with like what the professor was lecturing about you know <laughs> would you watch all the episodes again like if we did Ark in Space which we've probably seen a hundred times yeah. would you watch it again oh yeah you, okay. yeah I do I do uh, rewatch uh, the stories always, um, especially if it's a first or second Doctor story, because a lot of those I've, I've never seen. They just weren't broadcast much. Part of the fun of this podcast for me is to intentionally revisit these things we've seen so many times and try to look at them from a different perspective or scrutinize them, not to tear them apart. Uh, that doesn't take a lot of scrutiny sometimes, but to see it from a, a different perspective. And so no, taking notes, even though sometimes I, I did run out of time, is part of that process. And, and I, when I first started, I, I took copious amounts of notes. And I now limit myself to like a page, and I try to come up with three or four observations that are particularly new to me on this viewing. may not be new to other people listening to it, but something I never thought about on my previous viewings. In some episodes, I don't have anything new. You know, I think like Caves of Androzani, um, like some of those just classics, I, I felt like I struggled to say anything new about. And so, but even that process was interesting to me. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I try to prevent myself. I have a whole couple of shelves of Doctor Who reference material, and I could, if I wanted to, go and see what Lawrence Miles and Tatwood have mm -hmm. to say about any particular episode. And I've read... 
many of these books in whole or in part over the years, but I, I consciously refrain from doing that because opinions that I've read over the years have certainly informed however I'm going to react to a particular episode, but I have no control over that. I, but I do try to prevent myself from just parroting an opinion that I might have read that morning in someone else's book. So sometimes I'll, I'll look up something in particular, like I think for Face of uh, Planet of Evil, I looked up the, the costume designer or the set designer or something just because I wanted that information handy for the podcast. But I try to um, <clears throat> restrict myself to factual things. Yeah, and I think that's helpful it's to go back and look at some of the trivia about the episode and the production, not necessarily opinions, because I feel like sometimes I know with some feedback from listeners, Classic Who is new to a lot of people mm-hmm. or some of the corners of classic who that we delve into is at least new so some of the like you said the factual stuff i think is interesting to research before the episode mm-hmm. because some people tire of our opinions and they just want facts <laughs> just give us the facts guys like a dickensian school teacher <laughs> mr grad grind or somebody so for the novels that we do i know sometimes that can be a little tricky because they take a lot longer necessarily for people to read and that's maybe why we haven't done as many of them as I would like to like for me it's maybe it's almost it's almost easier to do a novel than it is to do mm-hmm. an audio because I spend so many hours a day reading anyway but I know people who have children or <laughs> more robust social lives than I do that can sometimes be a challenge so we're trying to read more books people <laughs> yeah yeah we should read more books but it, everyone should read more books please <laughs> But I think this might be an opportunity, too, to encourage any listeners uh, to tell us things uh, that you would like to see us do for this podcast. Because if you're talking about preparation for the podcast, there's preparation in the individual episodes, but also sort of what our thinking was, I think, as we put this podcast together. And and one of my thoughts was that I I wanted this podcast that was really broad in what it covered. Um, And I'd never done a podcast before, and I like a lot of aspects of Doctor Who, and that seemed like a no-brainer to me. I've come to realize that podcasts are often sometimes better suited to just ridiculous specificity. (laughs) Because, you know, you find your niche audience and every member of that niche listens to it whereas this is really broad we've heard a lot of feedback about this podcast that's like wow it's really fun to listen to even when we have no idea what you're talking about (laughs) yeah and and so if you're one of those listeners and you would like more of something or okay fine less of something (laughs) feel free to let us know less of that yeah vote one of us off the podcast shut the heck up about the dumb jokes (laughs) talk more about david tennant (laughs) He's so dreamy. <laughs> okay, next up we have the randomizer. And the randomizer has picked for us the faceless ones. The second doctor's story uh, from 1967, co-written by Malcolm Hulk and David Ellis. And also the last Ben and Polly story. We have done so much Ben and Polly, guys. I don't know what I don't know what it is about the it's randomizer. The newest drug craze. <laughs> it does sound like a. a you want to like do a, some Ben and Polly tonight? It, it does sound like the new club drug that everyone's talking about. The ben, uh, yeah, but, we've, we've done at least four. Yeah, we've done like four in a row. 
and what an exciting <laughs> tear jerking finale for the oh Fortnite. yeah <laughs> yeah it set the standards of like the sort of the brush off dismissal of a companion <laughs> that unfortunately was done way too often in the classic series yeah they just kind of bye oh it's, it's the it's yeah. the day we we left well bye <laughs> <laughs> which which also kind of puts this uh, the faceless ones in this kind of interesting category of the most recently the doctor ever traveled into the past because that he went like a year into the past for the faceless ones like the like it, it's actually taking place in like 1966 if it's mm-hmm. the day Ben and Polly yes. left right so that's kind of interesting mm-hmm. in a way and back to their departure what strikes me as interesting especially in contrast to New Who companions are the doctor's companions because they were stupid enough to get in the TARDIS and they have no way home because he doesn't have control. There is very little choice involved in the matter. And I think that's Mm -hmm. part of the non-emotional departures. And and we've become so used to this huge bond that is created between the doctor and the companions and this big decision to go off into time and space and have adventures, usually because their life is so rotten on Earth. Yeah. In these early days, they're just people who are like, well, crap, I want to go home. You're kind of fun, but, you know, yeah. <laughs> I do have a life. <laughs> yeah. One thing that's that I found kind of striking about these Troughton adventures, this one in particular, but also uh, um, Enemy of the World, very specifically, the Macro Terror to some degree in the Invasion, which we haven't talked about on the podcast yet, is just how much of their time they are. Mm-hmm. They really feel like a Danger Man episode or a Man from yeah. Uncle or an Avengers. You take out some of the more ultra science fictional elements and this could easily have been a, a Man from Uncle. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Um, I don't know what to make of that exactly, except that that was sort of just the atmosphere well, I, I, of the, I think the super spy stuff was yeah, really in the in the atmosphere. The, the um, you know this was quote the jet age mm-hmm. unquote. So setting it at an airport, which back in those days you know air travel was still kind of a luxury exotic kind of a thing, and I always thought of airline pilots as being a, a particularly respected and trusted segment of society. Especially in those days, so like a conspiracy of airline pilots mm-hmm. is kind of weirdly creepy, I think. Mm-hmm. But looking at it now, it's sort of like, you know, airports have kind of become like the essence of dull. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> so it's sort of hard to get into the this mindset of like how... Exotic. E- exotic and, and kind of scary it probably came off at the time. Yeah, even Chameleon Tours is going to exotic places like Rome and aren't they? Is it Switzerland? Switzerland. And yeah. Maybe Gibraltar. I don't remember. But you know, it's it's yeah. places where you would go if you were an English person. Yeah. But going to somewhere that's less rainy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it struck me so much though. The Doctor and Jamie escaped the Commandant more than once in this adventure, and you just can't help but think how different this would be today. Even the not having a passport thing might get you sent to a CIA black site. <laughs> yeah. This is 1967, and they could babble on about dead bodies and guns, and it's just like a nuisance to people. Yeah. Oh, Jesus, these crazy people again. Yeah, because this is before, you know, the big hijackings of the 1970s, mm-hmm. yeah. or the... Um, like the Munich massacre uh, the, of the Olympic team, the, that wasn't an airport. I don't know. I'm getting off track, but yeah. uh, the the, security the, is lax here, and they they, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they just don't mind them running around making wild accusations. Well, I, again, I guess because it, it, you know, Doctor Who at its heart being a, a kids show. What's the most obviously 
fake name we can give for a tour company? <laughs> Chameleon Tours. <laughs> Gee, they must be changing people. <laughs> I think they're exactly what they seem. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they could have called it like Kidnap Your Young Airlines. <laughs> that would have been a little more on the nose, in all fairness. Uh, uh, but, okay, we, the, the race is never actually named. No, I like to think they're just really effed up Zygons. <laughs> <laughs> They've lost their normal ability to shape change and are just improvising with whatever. Uh, that makes some sense, actually. Um, That's my head cannon. <laughs> nice. Uh, we don't even really know what their plan is exactly. Are they just replacing young people with, with duplicates and taking over the world that way? No, they're kidnapping the young people. Remember, because they miniaturize them. They have little shelves oh, yeah, full, yeah. Of, full of 50,000 kidnapped young people. They're, they don't use the terms, but it's something having to do with their biodata or mm-hmm. their DNA or whatever that's going to rejuvenate their race mm-hmm. in a kind of but da- they don't Davrosian s- way. Yeah, they don't specifically say why they're kidnapping the youth. And I think that's more of a thematic thing. Mm-hmm. They want that idea of some sinister infiltration into well, the youth of the country. Kids are dumb. Yeah. Yeah. You know, like, oh, they're just vain. They want to look young. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Here, here's like a, a cheap tour to Italy. Like, okay. <laughs> well, right behind you. Don't want to read the fine print? No, man. <laughs> I want to go to Italy. Get ripped on a bunch of Italian wine. Pick up some Italian chicks, you know. Kelvin likes to fill in a lot of backstory in these episodes. <laughs> It's the character work that is sometimes missing from these early Doctor Who's. Yeah, I think that would be like if, if instead of at London Gatwick Airport, it was at um, Miami Beach. Yeah, or I was I was going to say JFK Airport, but that wouldn't. I don't think that was called JFK yet. Or it was, was it in '67? I'm not sure. I, I, I was trying to think of the old name, and it's Idlewild. Yeah, yeah. Idlewild. Thanks for that. I, I, <laughs> I, listeners were like, what's it called? What did they use to call JFK? I, thus sabotaging my joke. <laughs> Yet again. <laughs> because I can't shut up and stop speculating about going off on tangents in the middle of things. Are you done? Well... <laughs> Yeah, no, I'm done. <laughs> it's a great thing about a tangent. You can always come back. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it, it, right behind the, this whole story is, of course, a whole universe of communist infiltration mm-hmm. metaphor metaphor stuff. Movies like uh, Invasion of the Body Snatchers yep. is the quintessential one. Uh, in the 60s, incidentally, is a really good period for disguised villains. If you remember the... Stan Lee and Steve Ditko early Spider-Mans. There's a villain called the Chameleon. Yeah, first Spider-Man yeah. villain. First Spider-Man villain. Uh, of course, Mission Impossible is all of those masks and things like that. The, the, this period was just like people were disguised all over the place, and I suppose that's all the the communist infiltration stuff. And I can't it's very Cold War espionage. It's Cold War espionage. Yeah. I can't I can't help but think that there's an obvious self-parody element to the whole thing because this is co-written by Malcolm Hulk, an avowed communist. Mm-hmm. Writing kind of a lampoon, I think, of this communist infiltration stuff. There's bits of little class discussion that I found hilarious. Mm-hmm. Uh, the nurse at one point has to remind the commandant to give his employees a lunch break. <laughs> so, so even the disguised villain has a like, a, okay, manager, make sure that labor is getting everything that they're that they're entitled to. <laughs> and of course, what happens at the end, of course, is that the director is in control. How, how do I put this? When they're when they're taking off in the UFO, the duplicated 
humans for the chameleons are still back on Earth, mm-hmm. which gives the director a type of control over his own people. Yeah. It's like our, our our duplicates are on this uh, are on the ship, so we're in control. But you guys, you have to do what I say, yeah. otherwise uh, you're going to be in danger because we've deliberately yeah. left them all on Earth. And the Doctor uses that. And that's how it all unravels. Of, yeah. Class difference. Because I think they specifically say, like, oh, the, just the privileged people are the special people. Yep. They have some line that indicates that on the Doctor's part. Uh, you look at a character like the Commandant, who Malcolm Hulk is clearly having lots of fun with. He's a petty little Napoleon. He's really just awful mm-hmm. for the first three or four episodes. But then he turns on a dime in the last couple of episodes and becomes the Doctor's companion mm-hmm. uh, and helps to resolve the plot. And that's his... That's the problem when you have a story that's primarily adventure-focused and not a character-based story. It's mm-hmm. that eventually, when you get to the resolution of the plot, if the heroes are going to win, then you need somebody to help them. And the only people who are necessarily left are people who might have to uh, change their personalities and to yeah. be able to fill the requirements well, they, of the plot. You needed them to be Ben and Polly, who are miniaturized in a drawer somewhere. Yeah, who are gone. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the, of all people, uh, the Doctor winds up working with Captain Blade. It's like a super <laughs> creepy murderer. It's like, oh, well, he's who we're going to work with at the well, end? Well, I, I, I read the somewhere. only one left. Um, I can't think of the actress's name, but the, the woman who played Sam. Oh, yeah, Pauline Collins. S- the, the idea was that Sam was going to be the Doctor's next companion. Oh, you can tell. And the I, I it didn't work out. I don't know if the actress just demurred in favor of other. That's what I read. She turned it down or whatever. But yeah, it really seems like she's being set up for something, and then they never really do anything with her because they go out of their way to establish how like uh, attractive and modern she is, but yeah. she's also you know proactive and resourceful. So yeah, I'm thinking there's some uh, last minute rewriting that happened to this story that I don't want to say gutted it, but. Knocked it off its leg a little bit. So what I didn't mm-hmm. look up in my research is just why Ben and Polly were sidelined for all of it. I assume it was a production thing, like they had vacations for their last episodes. I'd or... have to look it up because it is very strange. Uh, uh, they just played vanished from for a episode while. three on. They're essentially gone, uh, and, and Jamie is largely absent. Uh, he's, he gets duplicated, but he's kind of in and out too there until mm-hmm. the end. In and yeah, and Sam picks up the picks mm-hmm. up the slack. And and while there was a character change with the commandant, there was something fun to see contemporary people at that time uh, working with the doctor to thwart this mm-hmm. menace. It wasn't just the doctor coming in and saving the day. I mean, he did, yeah. but once he made everyone aware of the issues at hand, like actual humans helped yeah. <laughs> for once. <laughs> humans and and the the disguised chameleon who was yeah. helpful and then not helpful and yeah. then helpful and then not helpful as the plot demanded. I, I, again, I'm kind of like looking at this maybe through the lens of current events, but just the amount of time where they kept saying like, well, where is your passport? <laughs> and the doctor's like, I don't have a passport. That's not important right now. <laughs> he calls it mumbo jumbo or something. Yeah, he like calls that. it mumbo jumbo. <laughs> a passport. It's like, like What? Travel documents. Why would I have those? Every time, Lord. Jeez. You know, basically, though, I liked it. It was too long, and where the heck are the companions? And what's Pauline Collins doing here? And the characters go back and forth. But, you know, this is damning with faint praise or whatever, but I did. I I dug it. It was... felt of a period, and I just liked it. That's why I enjoyed it. I like 60s TV, so... It's it's a very okay... 
kind of yeah. story, you know, and those are always hard to uh, discuss. Definitely think it's one that that suffers from being just on audio. We have the two yeah. episodes, and and it is so modern and so sixties. Those episodes are so fun to look at and watch, even though it's relatively yeah. low budget because they, they get to set it all in the airport. It's and they kind of run around the same sets over and over again. It's still to see the hair and makeup mm-hmm. and costumes of the sixties people is just a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm not sure if I would have liked to have seen Pauline Collins. As a companion or not, I, I've always liked her. She's from Upstairs Downstairs. She's Sarah from Upstairs Downstairs. Oh, okay. uh, but she's always about 25% too much. Mm. You know, you can kind of <laughs> get that from here. Just, oh, she's good, but she's, yeah. yeah. She was uh, Queen Victoria, too, in, in the bad David Tennant werewolf. Oh, yes. Oh, oh, geez. The script didn't, I didn't, didn't give her any favors there. But, yeah. yeah. Still, I like the flirty business that she has with Jamie. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's the first that we've seen, I think. I mean, he'll he'll kind of flirt with Polly a little bit, but Ben's always there, so it's... <laughs> it's <laughs> like, look out. <laughs> yeah. So maybe this is kind of like the first hint of a romance. or It's certainly a very early one in Doctor Who. There are a couple little flirtatious moments here and there throughout early Doctor Who. Well, actually, you're right. This, that's after this. Because the Doctor gets a little flirty in the Enemy of the World. There's that scene uh, right in mm-hmm. episode one. No, that's a different... You'll have to go back to that podcast, listeners, and hear our discussion of Enemy of the World and flirtatious Patrick Troughton. <laughs> I'm not, I've not got this image of Patrick Troughton with, like, his shirt unbuttoned and holding, like, a brandy snifter. And, like, hey. Now everyone listening to this podcast has that image in their head. Thank you, Galvin. Passport, please. Here you go. Thank you. Now, let's see who we have here. Oh, boy. What? It says here you're from Damascus. Yes. That's in Syria. I know, but I'm from Oregon. Damascus, Oregon. It says so right there on my passport. And you expect me to believe that? Uh, yes. Are you sure you're not from some other make-believe town, like, I don't know, Lebanon, Pennsylvania, or Palestine, Texas? Those aren't make-believe towns. They're real places in this country. Oh, so now you're a terrorist and a geography teacher. Well, it's good to have something to fall back on in case the whole blowing yourself up in a crowd thing doesn't work out. That's ridiculous and offensive. I want to talk to your supervisor. Look, Mohammed. Uh, my name is Jeff. I just want to keep my country safe. And if that means unfairly singling out certain religions, that's fine by me. But I'm Episcopalian. Well, you might want to consider converting to Christianity. Who's next? You, the blobby guy without a face. Passport, please. Okay, it says here you're a chameleon from outer space. Is that true? Go go ahead and just nod if that's easier. All right, and your whole species lost their faces in a gigantic explosion. What? That makes no sense. How do you breathe or see where you're going? Hey, I thought I told you to go back to Syria. I'm from Oregon. No need to get excited, pal. You don't see your chameleon friend shouting, do you? He doesn't have a mouth. Never mind him, Mr. Chameleon. Can you tell me your reason for coming to America? Oh, you're starting an airline. How ambitious. I wish more immigrants had your entrepreneurial spirit. You're free to go. Welcome to America. 
What? You're letting a faceless alien with a history of irresponsible use of explosives start an airline, but I'm a terrorist threat? Next, the green gentleman with the sunglasses. Papers, please. I am Sizzix, a nice lord of the Martian High family. I require no papers. My word is my bond. Fair enough. Welcome to America. What? Next, you, the squad of armored gentlemen. Anything to declare? We declare that the Suntarans are the greatest warriors in the universe! And these uh, 24 proton blasters. Have a nice day, fellas. What? You're letting a squadron of alien warriors just waltz in here with weapons? We have a little something called the Second Amendment here, pal. Next. You dare disturb the Naimon. Mind your head on the doorway, sir. Next. Daleks conquer and destroy! Daleks conquer and destroy! Okay, that's it. That is it. The Daleks are the most evil mutant race in the known universe. They are literally chanting their plans to destroy you. They have everything in order. They're even signed up with TSA PreCheck. We are detail-oriented. But you have my passport right there. I am an American citizen. What is this human saying? He won't let me through. I've lived in this country for 44 years. My great-great-great-great-grandfather was Alexander Hamilton. Why do you humans fight amongst each other? Don't you know? You are equally inferior. We came to this country to exterminate a free democratic society. A house divided against itself cannot stand exterminate! I don't believe it. You killed him. Thank you. I'll just step over the body then. You are welcome. Next, you... Naked humanoids with spears? Crawl, 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 Okay then, it's time for our fifth and final round. Arcs of And we're going to wrap up our discussion of the Doom Coalition box sets. This is Doom Coalition 4. It's four episodes, all of them directed by Ken Bentley, not Nick Briggs. (laughs) Ship in a Bottle by John Dorney, Songs of Love by Matt Fitton, The Sign of the Angels by Matt Fitton, and Stop the Clock by John Dorney. And this takes Liv, Helen, and the Eighth Doctor to the end of the universe and beyond. Again! Yay! (laughs) There's so much doom in these stories, you guys. It is pretty. Doom-laden. Engorged with doom. There's a lot of, like, yeah, end-of-the-universe things happening. More so than than is usual for Doctor Who, which is kind of saying something. (laughs) So, to be full of spoilers, we should maybe bring up our listeners to where we were at the end of Doom Coalition 3. Yes. So the, the the conspiracy of Gallifreyans had been revealed, and the doctor's old friend Padrak <laughs> turns out to be the big bad guy. Uh, he's working with the Eleven and the Sonomancer and the now dead Clockmaker. Uh, and what that what has happened is that the Matrix has predicted the destruction of Gallifrey in the Time War with the Daleks. So the Daleks are not identified as being uh, the enemy at this point. So what Patrick has decided to do is to destroy all of time and space going forward from that moment. Correct? Yeah. I've got that yeah, right. Essentially right? leaving nothing but uh, Gallifrey. Yeah, because they don't know who the enemy is. Yeah. So they're just going to destroy everything. 
absolutely <laughs> everything except Gallifrey. It's pretty draconian. <laughs> <laughs> Don't get excited. The draconians are not in this no, box. No, no, they're not. Okay, but, so but, calm down, uh, everybody. <laughs> it's an extreme measure, to be sure. It's an extreme measure. Um, so and, and at the end of Doom Coalition 3, they had jettisoned the Doctor... Uh, live in Helen in an escape pod into the nothing future. Mm-hmm. There's no fu- they're going into the future, but there's nothing there, so it's just the vortex. Mm-hmm. So when we open on Ship in a Bottle, this is a bottle episode <laughs> in, an, in an audio, yes. which <laughs> seems like a bold choice. But I think it worked, actually. But it worked pretty well. I I'm really fond of that episode. Yeah. Uh, you wouldn't want every episode to be like that, but the idea to occasionally take a Doctor Who cliffhanger, because there's so many of them, and go, we aren't going to wrap it up in 30 seconds at the beginning of the next episode. We're going to dedicate an entire episode <laughs> yes. to them solving this problem, and it is so un-Doctor Who yeah. in that way. But it gives them time to catch up uh, with the Doctor and Liv and Helen, who have been kind of split up, and the plot has moved at such a fast pace up to now, they get to talk to one another and find out bits of information from one another that the others don't know, and just kind of reestablish the relationship. And it's I found it compelling. You really, the only thing I can think of to compare it to would be uh, a Voyage of the Damned. That's the only other Doctor Who story I can think of where like. There's a disaster, and you're just trying to get out of it. Yeah, and that was consciously modeled on things like the Poseidon Adventure. Oh, yeah. And <clears throat> those old 70s disaster. I'm sure we'll talk about that at some point. Yeah, yeah. I was a little more sour on this than you guys, I mm. think. I thought the dialogue kind of went round and round over the same points. I felt that there wasn't enough development in what was happening in the plot to justify hitting the same dialogue points over and over mm-hmm. again. There was necessary work being done with uh, Liv particularly, and the Doctor's relationship, hashing out why he had left them behind, which was never explained to my satisfaction anyway uh, in Doom Coalition 3, but at least they, they got over that hump and they're all back on board by the end of, uh, by the end of Ship in a Bottle. Uh, there's also a thematic thing about hope and hopelessness that I thought never really rose above a philosophy and ethics 101 seminar stuff. Like, they really didn't push that as much as they could have. I thought the episode with the dead people calling you on the phone did a much better job with its well, the- themes better of episode. Loss. Yes, yeah. I, will, I will give you that. That was a very good episode. Yeah. Having said that, I think you have three very fine actors just working together pretty strongly in this chip in a bottle. So even with my complaints about the dialogue and, and maybe the thematics of it, I thought the three of them worked together very well. And then it gets so bonkers after that <laughs> that I enjoyed just a little calm before the storm, for sure. Because the next yeah. one is the the Songs of Love, which is sort of this wrap-up to the River Song portion of mm-hmm. the box sets. And it's really interesting and a little jarring at first to start seeing so much of the new series seep into, even if it's out of chronological order, <laughs> into classic Who. Because we get River Song's first visit to Gallifrey, we get references to her killing the Eleventh Doctor. I, I don't mean jarring in a bad way, but it's just, yeah. you're just I'm so used to those storylines being segregated and to have it be plot points from the new series in these classic series box sets is really <laughs> mind blowing. <laughs> it's probably my favorite River story. It is. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say the same thing. Well, she's. Uh, 
active and engaged. She has her own agency. She interacts with the plot on its own terms, mm -hmm. not just something like it's something that she's deigning to notice, like, oh, Hitler is around, that sort of thing. <laughs> uh, and there's nothing where her relationship with the doctor is not the primary engine of what's going on with her here. Mm -hmm. She's a big part of saving the universe mm -hmm. and she does that largely independent of the doctor and she dreams up ideas and she executes plans on her own yeah. to make things happen. I'm like, I really like this. I, I'd love to see a lot more of River. And they kept the sweetie and spoilers cheesiness out of it until the very end. I was so disappointed because when she's making her goodbyes, it's like, oh, spoilers, sweetie. Ah, oh, jeez. Like, you went a whole hour, <laughs> whole hour without having to do that. Too often when River's song showed up, she always gets used as kind of like this weird throwaway joke. River comes in and sweeps and does some really awesome thing that's just totally unexplained, and then she just kind of flounces off, you know. <laughs> and and here she's at, you actually see her doing what, you, you knew she could do, but you just never really saw so much. Yes, it's almost as if she's a character and not a plot device. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> Remarkable. <laughs> Craziness. And, and I like that we don't see the Doctor in this. She really gets to mm -hmm. become the hero and save him at the very end, and he gets pulled back into the story, because we haven't seen him since the end of the Chip in a Bottle yep. episode. Yeah, Songs of Love, I think, in other respects, is a little shaky. Uh, I'm not sure that I cared very much for River's relationship advice to the Sonomancer. Basically, the Sonomancer, and we'll talk about her, yeah. uh, I think, a little bit more thoroughly later, is her character is grounded in a cliched and somewhat sexist fashion, and I don't know that... Well, we'll 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 say that for a few minutes mm -hmm. from now when we talk about that. I, I did like that there were time refugees coming from the future. This is timely for our own <laughs> uh, for our own world these days. They all got murdered, I think, by Padrack. But uh, yeah, time refugees from the future. That's the first you. That's the first warning some people get. Like some huge disaster. Is out there. <laughs> it's, it's a scary it's idea. A scary idea. <laughs> yeah. Coming from Anywhere the future. is better than the future. <laughs> Then we've got uh, episode three, The Side of the Angels, which is totally banana pancakes, you guys. <laughs> it's bizarre. I loved it. I, loved I, loved it. I did, too. <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, my God, it's the monk. Yay. <laughs> it's the monk. It's the weeping angels. It's an early regeneration of Alistra. It's <laughs> like amazing. kind of... It's like three rivers of Doctor Who, three streams of Doctor Who. Yeah. <laughs> Colliding in this yeah. big, this big vortex. And I really, I really love Rufus Hound as the monk. And just you know, totally that whole monk vibe of just sort of not giving a crap what you're doing to time. <laughs> you know, just like, oh, wait, why not? Yeah, let's just do that. You know, and and like that he's actually a part of this Doom Coalition thing, yes. which is it's a weird setting. It's it's New York City in. Uh, the 70s. In the 1970s. So this is uh, you know, the Robert Moses era of destroying mm -hmm. everything and building it into mm -hmm. you know monstrous death trap of the city <laughs> that, it, uh, that it became. But it, now, I, do they mention Robert Moses? I don't think they do. But he, he's they, kind of in the background. It there. took me a while to kind of put together, like, this is when New York was really falling apart and had to be rebuilt. Yeah. And then it's also a sequel, to some degree, to uh, Angels of Manhattan. Yes, which is we needed bizarre. one of those. 
<laughs> we, were, we were drooling for that sequel. <laughs> well, just like, oh, the angels were already here. We just decided to use them. I thought that was kind of that was kind of cool. That's, yeah, that's a great. It's a great, terrible idea, right? Because when the doctor's <laughs> like, "You're nuts," you as the listener, like, "You are totally right. nuts." How do they even communicate with the weeping angels? Doesn't that they mentioned that at some point too? How do you even talk to them? <laughs> it's, I don't remember. I was full of bad New York accents. Oh, such terrible, well, terrible yeah. New York accents. Gleefully bad. We, we, yeah. we have done some pretty yeah. bad English accents on this podcast, so I'm not yeah. going to cast aspersions on that. No, no. Quite, yeah, although we weren't paid to do it. That's right. In all fairness. <laughs> it's like, that's right. We're not professionals recording stuff with our bad yeah, is, is, is the doctor ever going to visit, like, the Midwest? No. Where, where he's going to have, like, the, quote, basic American accent, unquote, and not, like, some bizarre mutated southern accent or bizarre mutated New York accent. No. Again, I write those off. I, they don't really Or you could go to Southern they're... California and run into a lot of Valley Girl speak. <laughs> I, I write it off, too, because I'm a Doctor Who fan, but I can't not notice it. You know, I go like, oh, and for me it's always the... If I were to ever try to get somebody who doesn't know anything about Doctor Who into Doctor Who, what would I choose? And something like this, of course, would be preposterous on many levels. <laughs> yes. um, it's a perfect place to start, man. <laughs> like 50 years of continuity, differing ones, all these characters that you only know about from the audios. There's these angels that you can't see, but if you were to see them on TV, they would, okay, whatever. But, you know, also these accents. That by itself would be like, oh, come on, what is this nonsense? Well, you know, it's like that whole thing of like an American trying to write a British character, and so like the American has them say things like pip-pip-cheerio. Throws in random references to like lorries and torches and boots and, and boots to, to like see look I know what British English is and and <laughs> it's like the same kind of thing with Americanisms I suppose. Well, two things I want to mention before we leave this particular uh, story. One for longtime Big Finish nerds, mm -hmm. there's a, some really fun interaction between the Doctor and the Monk at the end, and I was surprised that they let it go. As unexplained yet again it's so continuity heavy bringing in these old stories but the monk has done something really really awful to the eighth doctor in a future incarnation so his seeming cruelty and disdain for the monk at the end mm -hmm. is coming from something the monk has yet to do to him in some earlier big finish yeah, audience. I, I had I, I had to look that up on the on the tardis wiki but yeah like this this rufus hound interpretation of the monk is like a a middle regeneration yep. of the monk, which I didn't and so they, get at the time. They played it off really nice, but the monk did not quite get, why do you hate me so much? <laughs> you know. Uh, so I love that moment. And it was fun because I didn't realize how attached I had become to uh, Alistra mm -hmm. until the end of this when she regenerates and it, you hear her voice. I had, <laughs> and a, and little, I I had a little shiver. I did. I was like, oh, it's Jacqueline Pierce. <laughs> it's Jacqueline Pierce. And yeah, so I'm excited that she's going to do more audios. Yes. And, and was this, um, was it this story or was it the one before where uh, the Eleven just keeps shooting that person and having them regenerate? It's, I think it's a... The next one, I can't remember. We'll talk about that in a minute because there's other stuff about the eleven, right? But but yeah, yeah. Before we leave side of the angels, I do want to. It has one of my two favorite lines from the entire Dim Coalition thing. It's either Liv or Helen. I don't remember which one, but one of them is complaining. Is everyone the Doctor went to school with a psychopath? <laughs> 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 when you think about it. It's yeah. like actually, yes, yes. <laughs> my other favorite, of course, is when they're uh, trying to figure out who Octavian was in Ship in the Bottle. They've just left the, yep. the eighth regeneration of the Eleven. And the doctor finally gets it. 
like, it's just like the master's impenetrable pseudonyms. (laughs) (laughs) This is like, like, this is something like that actively insulting thing where the master comes up with like the dumbest possible pseudonym. (laughs) Like, Reverend Magister. Yeah, the monk did it too with uh, Reverend Mortimer. Because like the monk's real name is Mortimus, I think. Yeah. Yes. It, it doesn't really show up in this story, but there's some reference to like where he made this, makes the comedy to the doctor. You know, you're the only person who ever calls me the monk. <laughs> <laughs> I wear other clothes. <laughs> and then it all wraps up in Stop the Clock. Yeah. So what did we think about Stop the Clock? It would it finished, but. <laughs> It didn't finish. Nope. So, so the Doom Coalition thing is essentially done. It's a reasonably satisfying ending. Ending, but the Eleven is out there, has it having kidnapped Helen, and so now there's going to be a whole "Let's go find Helen" arc. And traditionally, the box sets move from one box set into the other. So okay. it was kind of telling in the end of the War Doctor series that they a knew John Hurt was getting very very old, or b didn't think they could get him back. Um, that they didn't have a hook. Okay. Because almost always they're going to have a hook into the next box set. So that didn't surprise me. I personally was very excited that the Eleven survived this. I was thinking they were going to kill him off, and I think he's got more potential to him. He's oh, an yeah. interesting character. Yeah, I'm torn on that. I basically like the Eleven as a villain, too, but I, I resist these Joker-type characters going on indefinitely because mm-hmm. in, it it diminishes the quality of a hero like Batman or whatever. If you can't put the Joker down, just get <laughs> done with him because he's murdering people every yeah. time. And I particularly was sour on the Eleven here because of that scene where he convinces the Gallifreyan guard to let him go and then kills her. Mm-hmm. Uh, because this is that whole serial killer as super psychologist trope that goes mm-hmm. back to Hannibal Lecter, which I hate. It rubs me so much the in wrong In all way. fairness, though, they yeah. used that in the first episode of the Doom Coalition box set was basically Hannibal Eleven as Hannibal. I guess. Yeah, well, so yes. comes full circle in the story whether you like the trope or not. They had established it previously. <laughs> I just read Helter Skelter for the first time, and Charlie Manson was no genius. These serial killers are usually not your no. Einsteins. Why can't you just relax and have fun with serial killers like the rest of America? Well, and that's the thing, too. It's cruelty as art, which is I'm finding it difficult to appreciate these days. I remember yeah. James Elroy talking about serial killers. I'm just going to talk about James Elroy now for some reason. <laughs> uh, and you know, he wrote his share of serial killer stuff, too, but he eventually got tired of it because it stands in for why people really commit crimes mm-hmm. in the world. It's just an easy way to have all of the kind of frisson of a murderer without dealing with any of the social or psychological circumstances that actually make real people murder other real people. And, yeah, they're, it's essentially a fantasy character, like an ogre. Yeah. Uh, and I thought that the, the actor, I don't remember who plays Eleven, I think he's terrific. I think mm-hmm. he's really good. Yeah. I don't actually mind him surviving into another arc. Um, but, you know, there was five minutes here where I was like, eh, I'm just kind of finding this unpleasant. I totally hear you. But one of the things I think is interesting about the Eleven is that you have the context of all these different personalities. If the Eleven mm-hmm. just were this yeah. psycho guy who has this torturing fetish, then it would be pretty dull uh, really fast, but that when was, you have that these was like different the sixth versions, life of the eleven was yeah. that guy. Well, this was, I think, the eleven acting. Yeah, yeah, this moment. was, you know, uh, but yeah. like his sixth personality is the one that's all like, kill it, kill him, ah! you know, that guy. 
I don't know if Big Finish will do this, but yeah. by establishing these other slightly different versions of the character, that they could go more in depth and explore in contrast. They did a little already. We saw we saw Eight as the good man, and we mm-hmm. saw the funny one, the kleptomaniac one that they oh, briefly yes. appeared with. <laughs> so I think in the full context of the character, I think there's potential to go above and beyond the serial killer cliche. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you want to talk about the Sonomancer? I do, because it resolves the entire Doom Coalition story. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's the old Doctor Who cliche that the secondary villain realizes that the primary villain is actually not on their side, and so they betray the primary villain, and then that unravels all of the plans. And in this case, it's the Sonomancer being convinced by the Eighth Doctor that Padrick does not love her. Mm-hmm. So, okay, the psychology here is a little bit insulting uh, Mm -hmm. because this is, again, you know, oh, this is a damaged, overlooked woman who is now going to wreak revenge on the the man who's been been toying with her emotions. But then it also drags in Helen, too, Mm -hmm. uh, because the Sonomancer freezes time uh, right before the Eleven is going to kill Helen and convinces Helen to do some nonsense with the TARDIS. I don't remember exactly what it was, but, oh, it crashes crashes through the transduction barrier into the big machine and so that unravels the whole plan so the the link is made between the sonomancer and i can't remember her original name excuse me yeah. um and helen as both overlooked women now helen was based on the very lambert as we talked about earlier and she was a professional woman in the 1960s so you could say that she was overlooked or or spat upon back in the day but she never strikes me as being so insecure that she'd make a little speech about it mm-hmm. while sacrificing him, herself to resolve the entire plot and i think oh, this is a this is a man writing this isn't mm-hmm. it this is an attempt at feminist understanding that i thought was was poorly done there's enough else going on that I forgave it. Like, mm-hmm. oh, you've got Liv doing this thing over here, and you've got the doctor doing this thing over here. And so um, I thought it was very well handled on a, on a plot level, like going from character to character to character to character and building mm-hmm. into, a, into a big satisfying conclusion. But I didn't like the psychology at the, at the root of it. I guess it didn't bother me so much because it felt like, again, paralleling the early episodes. And they laid the groundwork, again, whether you liked it or not, because know. Helen and the Sonomancer in her very first appearance built up this conversation and started it in the second box. I had forgotten about that. It was a callback to that. And that episode was closer to the first episode with Helen where you saw her in the 60s and saw her frustrations um, with her job and issues regarding gender. And so I feel like plot-wise it was pulled through. And I think if they were the only two females in this box set, then I would be like, yeah, they just get saddled with that story. Yeah, but there, there's there so many other women. representations. Yeah. And so it becomes sort of complex in that in that way. I mean, complex for Doctor Who is. And there's a lot of different characters representing a lot of different uh, perspectives. Yeah. And I mean, it was cheap and it probably wasn't planned. I did love the callback to the Red Lady. Yes, the Sonomancer is the Red Lady. I did not expect that. I did not expect that. And again, they're just these little moments where for once in these box sets, I felt like the writers really, whether it was planned or they just went back before they wrote this last one and really picked the elements they wanted to thread through and bring to the end. I really enjoyed it. It felt complete. It's tough to to judge how engineered this whole writing of this is. I mean, uh, to some degree, probably yes. To some other degree, you know, it's just oh, we can just use this thing that was said earlier. Mm -hmm. And it is written by the same two guys. So uh, if they get 
if their process is anything like my writing process, these things will kind of spark late mm-hmm. in the thing. Like, yeah. oh, you know, yeah. she could have, she could be the red lady. Did I establish anything that would make that impossible? No? Well, then let's go for it. Yeah. All my writing's been pretty um, stream of consciousness-y kind of quality to it. We're like, I'm just kind of making things up and then like... Yeah. And if it had been a whole yeah. episode based, uh, you know, as a sequel to The Red Lady, and a, it, it didn't give you much time to think about it or pick it apart. It just gave you just enough time to go, oh, cool. And so that was probably perfect as a denouement kind of thing and not dwell on it too much. So in the end, I, you know, I kind of dug Doom Coalition a little bit more than I expected to. You, th- you think about it, and it's 16 hours of Doctor <laughs> Who. That yeah. is... That's more than any new season of mm-hmm. Doctor Who. That's so. more than uh, the War Games. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it's more than the chase. It, it's it's more than Doctor Master Plan. It's yeah. quite quite considerably more than yeah. Uh, yeah. than those. It it feels like there's less material because well there is because you spend a lot more time establishing stuff on audio. You can't just show a thing and then move on from it. You have to say what the thing is and then yeah. reestablish that the thing is still there. And, uh, but overall, yeah, I dug it. I'm, and we've spoiled it for all of our listeners. <laughs> Anybody who cares to hear it has already heard all the good parts. But um, what, what, it, what more good. can I say? I really it, liked it, particularly it, the last two box sets. Yeah, the uh, Doom Co- Coalition 4 is the best of, of the Doom Coalitions and uh, it builds on everything that had been established in the earlier ones and it all comes together. Yeah, and for those of us who spent a decade wondering, oh, I, will we ever get Paul McGann to do anything ever again? Because he was <laughs> resisting doing these yeah. audios for so many years. There's like, what? There's a more Paul McGann than you can shake a stick at. There's <laughs> so a super abundance of, of Paul McGann. So much Paul McGann. It's McGannerific. <laughs> Well, that's our podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, We are going to be back next recording uh, live at Console Room here in the Twin Cities. So if you're going to be a Console Room, look for us there. Um, But that episode will be coming out in May, and we'll be discussing the first four episodes of Doctor Who Series 10, a rare new Who episode of Get Off My World. Until then, I'm Joshua. I'm Pat. And I'm Kelvin. And we're saying, Get off my world! Oh my god, <laughs> there's a gore role-playing game? Oh my god. Good god. That raises a lot of questions. It does. Oh, that could get really <laughs> icky. <laughs> Holy cow. Okay, anywho. Way to throw that out right before we start. <laughs> <laughs> it just it came, into, came into my inbox. Setting the tone. Oh, you got gore in your inbox? Various role playing. Well, now, now I could just throw out this whole gore Doctor Who crossover novel I was writing. <laughs> You're setting the tone here, Harrigan. <laughs> oh, dear. This reference work will also be useful. To, go- to Gorian role players and fans of all kinds. Dig it. <laughs> role players are not as a resource for fan fiction, role playing, and Gorian activities of all kinds. We go. Gorian activities of all kinds is one hell of a loaded phrase. <laughs> yeah. Anywho. Okay. Excuse me, I'm off. I'm getting yeah. over a cold, and I'm going to be full of snot. Great.